Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk Radio. Tonight's show is a doozy. This is the modern Greek tragedy starring you. I have to tell you how I came up with this topic. As many of you know, I live in Panama. There's this big volcano called Baru. And so my husband and I were driving down the mountain from the volcano. Actually, we were on the side of the volcano, driving down the mountain. And there's this big sign that says, bookstore, building and all contents, $55,000. I said, honey, honey, pull over, pull over. And uh, he pretty paused, but then he pulled over. And he told me he pulled over because he wanted to get a plastic card to list of all the poisonous snakes in Panama so he could be alert for them in case he should, we should see one. And so, of course, I was excited well, maybe we could move into the bookstore and I could just read books. It's so exciting. So I talked to the guy who was like seriously down and negative. And I said, well, you know, I'm looking for a book on, you know, philosophy or something like that. You know, a book on thinking, on thought. And he says, well, this is my favorite corner. So he took me to this corner like Aristotle and Plato. I said, man, I don't, I don't think I'm bright enough for all that stuff. So I found this book. It's a skinny book, not even 200 pages. And it's Aristotle's Poetics by Francis Ferguson. I started reading it, and I said, oh, my God. This book tells how to write a Greek tragedy. Yes, step by step, how to write a Greek tragedy. I'm like, wow, step by step, I can do that. So I started reading this. I said, man, this is just like modern medicine. They must have written the whole standard of care based on a Greek tragedy. Holy cow. This is awesome. So as you might guess, it didn't take me long to read the whole book. But I was really, really excited. So tonight what I'm going to share with you is how to write a Greek tragedy. (laughs) 
and how all of us are being ensnared in this Greek tragedy. And literally, each and every one of us plays multiple roles. We're the star, we're the chorus, we're the audience, and ultimately, each one of us is Hamlet. And each one of us is participating in a story whose ending is, um, well, tragic. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so first of all, we have to know what a tragedy is so we can just get a grip on this. So a tragedy is an imitation, so a tragedy, you know, a work of tragedy. They had standards. They even had contests, by the way, you know, who could write different works of tragedy. Okay. So an imitation of a serious and complete action of, it has to be of a certain magnitude. That means it can't be trivial. And it has to involve fear, lots and lots of fear, and pity. Not a lot of pity, but pity. Need pity and lots and lots of fear. And so the writer, the good writer, has got to evoke a proper expression of these two emotions. This is like seriously simple, right? For a tragedy, you only need two things, fear and pity. There can be other things, but they're optional. They're optional. And so you also have pieces. There's physical pieces like on the stage. So let's talk about these pieces and what they do. So you have the characters, and the characters have lines. In the old days they called it verse, but I'm going to try and keep this in modern-day English. And so they say these lines back and forth to each other, and these lines are designed to create emotion in the heart or to stir the audience. And, of course, the actors themselves portray this um, action. And so action in the old days was not what we think of it as something physical, you know, like I pick up a jar, move it from here to there, that's action. No. Action is a movement of emotion, in this case fear, through the characters from one to the other, and it kind of circles around, and to get the audience caught up in this and experiencing this. All right. This is not an easy task. I know. I've tried to write plays, believe it or not. I mean, not for money, just for... Uh, pastime. And so the characters talking to each other is not enough because they can't really convey in a credible fashion, you know, this pity and fear and this serious and complete uh, event of magnitude. So then we have the chorus. And the chorus um, basically says things that are audible either to the audience only or the audience and the characters. And the chorus gives information to advance the plot, to keep everyone on the same page, and to make the whole uh, tragedy or you know, imitation of this serious life event uh, believable. So it's important you have to have a chorus. And so the chorus is not any of the characters. The chorus must not be... Uh, directly, immediately, or even plausibly affected by the plot. This is, this is important. And of course, you can have some music, of course. And then you need the audience. So you have uh, 
three essential pieces, which is the actors, the chorus, and the audience. Okay. Now, why does why why is the, is this tragedy so important? This this art form. Well, it's because people derive a special kind of pleasure. They're designed to get a special kind of pleasure from experiencing recurrent bouts of fear punctuated by an actual disaster, which then evokes pity, as in, oh my God, isn't that awful? That's too bad, that happened. Okay, so you have fear, like, oh my God, oh my God, it could happen to me. Oh, what is it? When is it going to happen? Oh my God, I don't know. So that feeling is one, apparently, that human beings are designed to experience and to get pleasure from. Somehow, I missed that piece. But those of you who read uh, Who Done It or who read uh, suspense stuff, you uh, understand that, that whole thing. And so the next concept to understand is the concept of action. So action is an archaic ancient word which has none of the meanings of modern day. So action is a vision or inspiration which motivates or moves the poet to write or the actors to, uh, to do something. And so this is really important. And then, of course, the, the good tragedy writer makes a plot. And in the plot, he has varying motivations. So let's talk about the plot of someone entering the uh, medical industrial complex. Most of us, the entry point is purchasing insurance. So what's the motivation? What's the, what's the emotional feeling of this act of, of purchasing? It's the desire to be protected or it's the fear of being harmed by disease and the desire to be protected. And then every good tragedy has an illusory motivation. That's a motivation that's an illusion. This is very important. The motivation has to be an illusion because if it's real, then you don't really have a tragedy because the person is acting uh, in such a way that you're going to have basically a happy outcome. So this is not what we're after here. This is a tragedy. Okay, so the underlying, there has to be an underlying illusion or false assumption, at least on the part of the character it's even better if it's shared by the audience and by the uh, chorus. And so as this person enters the healthcare system through the purchase of insurance, they have a desire for protection from, and well, let's just say illness, and the illusion that the insurance will provide the protection. So this is an illusion. It's got to be an illusion, otherwise where's the tragedy? Very, very important. And so this emotion, which motivates the purchase of the insurance, the fear of disease, the desire for protection, um, has to be motivated by, uh, by the character and thought of the character, um, by his habitual beliefs, habitual motivation. And the important thing is this association is so um, 
untrue, or it's an illusion. It has to be and can only be maintained actually by the course. And this is the job of the course. So what's the course? Well, the chorus in our society is very huge. The chorus is the media telling you about the next epidemic. The chorus is public service announcements. The chorus is research paid for by the drug companies, insurance companies, and hospitals. So you have this credible chorus, and this chorus basically fills the consciousness of the characters in the Greek tragedy and, of course, the audience. And so this chorus is actually relied upon to set the framework and set the foundation. And so the chorus then must be pretty, pretty, uh, I guess the word would be loud. And so there's a lot of motivations that, that are at, at work here. Okay, so the person is motivated to enter the medical industrial complex. They're motivated to buy insurance because of their fear of disease and a desire for protection. So they're consciously moving towards something, we'll call it protection. Then, what happens? They have something called benefits. And that's, that's a neutral term because benefits are not always beneficial, of course. So then they're motivated to get the annual physical exam. What's the motivation? Well, there are many motivations. Uh, the motivation is to be thought well of by maybe a spouse or relative who feels they should get this done. Um, maybe they have a desire to, again, ward off illness. And they have, again, an illusory belief, an illusion, that the annual exam will help them ward off or reduce their chances of sickness in the future. Now, we've had a previous episode where you know that the annual exam, should you decide to engage in it, is actually hazardous to your health. And this is a position taken by the medical profession itself, actually. This is a common uh, it's common knowledge among doctors that at least it's of no use. There you can get 100% agreement. The annual exam is of no benefit to anyone's health. And there's a growing segment of physicians and researchers who have determined that the annual exam is actually hazardous to your health. But again, this is a Greek tragedy, so the character in the Greek tragedy has an illusion. And this is the illusion, the underlying illusion. So the illusion that the exam is going to benefit his health fuels his desire to participate at that level. And the other thing about a tragedy, to make it really good, is the motive must be clear. So it must be clear the person's going to get an annual exam, they're concerned about their health, they want to be responsible. And so the character has to be acting with clear, rational purpose. And we see this with the entrance into the healthcare system. And then there's something called praxis. And the praxis is, is, is what's the action? What does this person do? So this, this, this clear, rational purpose leads the person to do something, in this case have a checkup, make something. Um, once he receives uh, a diagnosis, usually erroneous, the person will then be motivated to maybe take chemotherapy, get radiation, or have surgery to uh, 
get cured to make a disease go away. Or maybe the person will be motivated to take a cholesterol medication, uh, which takes 1,250 years to show benefit in order to prevent some type of event. Or it motivates the person to understand something. In this case, the person will go for test after test after test after test in their quest for understanding. Again, the underlying illusion is that the results of those tests provide information that will enhance health. So this is uh, the beginning of the Greek tragedy, which is, uh, which is healthcare or I should say participation in the healthcare system. And this behavior by the characters sets, uh, sets the stage. And so uh, here in book he says, we can see that the characters are also moved by feelings they hardly understand or respond to ideas or visions which are illusory. In other words, an illusion, false. When one thinks of the other arts that imitate action, it is even more obvious that rational purpose will not cover all action. And so there needs to be this movement of spirit. And they represent it in music or painting, and lyric verse, but they have just stage sets. This is not easy to create this big illusion, but this is, it works. And so if this rational purpose will not cover all action, you need a movement of spirit. This is where the medical industrial complex excels. And so when you have a movement of spirit, of energy, it needs to be something mysterious, something that the characters can't quite get their handle on, but they're motivated to either follow it or get away from it, and something the audience doesn't quite can't quite identify, but they're motivated to empathize with the characters, that they want the character to either um, escape this state or whatever. So this is where the uh, next thing happens, is you need fear. You need an unending, relentless torrent of fear. And by fear, this means the individual, this is the characters in the play, that be you, and the audience, that be your relatives, or whoever reads about or sees on the news of your tragic outcome, they need to have the same belief in this spirit. One such spirit is um, HIV. And so with HIV, you have this postulated spirit, which is a virus. And this virus is possibly to move from person to person, unpredictably. Round and round and round she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. And this is really important, because each person needs to feel and believe that at any time, this thing they fear could strike. And they must periodically see somebody actually afflicted with this. And then when they see this person afflicted, then this big outpouring of pity. Now, with HIV, when it first uh, was announced to me, it was back in 1983, 82, 
um, you know, I, I, I'd never seen anybody with that affliction in my four years of medical school at a tertiary teaching hospital. And so I was, I really had to scratch my head on this. How could something be so rare that it has not come to the teaching hospital's attention in four years? In other words, this would literally have to be an event that has a frequency of less than one in 10,000. Really shocking. So I left medical school with this incredible fear of this deadly virus that was sexually transmitted and that, uh, you know, our, our detection facilities or abilities were limited. So this was really quite, um, quite a, a, a psychic burden and tremendous, tremendous fear. And so, of course, this fear, constant fear, constant fear, constant fear, has to be satisfied. One has to see evidence of it or disaster of it. We see this now in our, um, you know, with the HIV diagnosis, people being diagnosed with HIV, and like, oh my God, you have this, this, this spirit that's now entered you, and we have to route it out with what medications, of course. What kind of medications? Well, medications that give the very symptoms that we've told everyone to fear. And so then the person receives these, uh, this torture, this mutilation, um, in many cases killing. And those who watch, the spectators, say, oh, oh my God. So finally, in 1997, my sister-in-law was diagnosed with AIDS. And she was in the military, and so it was determined that, well, I guess she got it somehow in the military. And, of course, she took all the drugs, and she uh, died, of course, within the year, just as they predicted. So this is it's, it's very, very important. So you have to have a periodic uh, tragedy. Otherwise, the continual state of fear doesn't work. So it needs, you need to press the reset button. And that's what, uh, that's what this says. And so in Aristotle's philosophy and in many following theories on human conduct, the concepts of movement of spirit, let's say action, action is a desire, so something you actually consciously desire, and passion, passion is an emotion that possesses you that you have no control over, are contrasted. So action is active, the psyche perceives something and wants it, moves towards it, passion is passive, and the psyche suffers something it cannot control or understand, but it is moved by this. And so this is very important. And in healthcare, we see this all the time, all the time. People are consciously motivated, if you ask them. They're motivated to seek better health. They're motivated to seek relief. But if you dig down to the next level, why would they continue to seek relief in an arena where they get no relief? right? You know, maybe three, four, five, six, seven, ten tries, you're not getting results, scratch your head and say, hey, maybe it's not working. Well, why don't you do that? Well, because there's other motivations. A desire for security, to have coverage, a desire to be accepted. You know, you know that if you follow this standard path, people will approve of you, they will accept you, and also a desire to be a good person and to do good and to do the right thing. And a desire for uh, social status, for importance. 
I mean, in the United States, if you don't have health insurance, if you confess to not having health insurance, people say, oh my God, you don't have health insurance. <sighs> you must really be poor. You must be really a terribly low social status. Oh, you're the reason our country has poor health outcomes. And so not getting in the game has consequences other than a person's uh, health. And this is where people get tripped up. When you attempt to use what's purported to be a healthcare system to satisfy um, non-health goals. And so there's types of motivation. One is uh, pathetic motivation. And pathetic motivation is motivation by passion. When I say passion, I don't mean lust necessarily. Passion means, in this case, taking action for reasons you don't even know that are motivating you. For example, we now have a public health system teaching children as young as six years old the standard of care, teaching them that they need immunizations, that they need an annual physical exam, that they can't figure out if they're healthy. Feeling good is not its own reward. And, and teaching them um, about AIDS and teaching them about drugs they need to take and all of this indoctrination. And so then when this child becomes an adult, he's actually motivated by this, this information that he, he doesn't even realize is motivating. And above and beyond that, people are motivated by the vague promises that they hear from government announcements, from um, public media, and not even realizing that these, these motivations, these informations are coming from a source that cannot be relied upon. So then there's ethical motivation. The ethical motivation is closer to reason, and this is the conscious motivation. So the conscious motivation is I want to become healthy, I want to live longer, I want to live a better life free of pain, free of suffering. That would, that's the rational, conscious motivation. And, and that conscious motivation can only take you so far with the modern industrial complex because, of course, participation doesn't produce those results. And so you need the passion, which is the indoctrination of your youth, which is the um, words from the chorus constantly being repeated to causing you to, to doubt yourself. And so... You have the character then doing things, making things, and trying to seek understanding based on a pile of lies that even the audience and, of course, necessarily the chorus believe. So the chorus suffers with the actor. And through the layman's and terrible visions, the chorus helps move the action to its end. And this is really what we see the media doing with healthcare. They lament the different diseases. They lament the new, new diseases that are coming out. And they bring to light the suffering of uh, individuals here and there who might have this new disease that's coming to a theater near you. And so let's take a look at an, an example of this. And as I 
mention I'm on the, uh, as I said, the, the doctor feed. And so we got this alarming uh, prediction. Chronic kidney disease, individual risk top 50% in midlife. So midlife, people 30, 64 years of age, 50% will have chronic kidney disease. Oh, my God. I am worried and fearful already. So let's take a look. Let's read this article. We're not going to read the whole thing. This is a little uh, highlight. And this was published in the March 2015 issue of the American Journal of Kidney Disease. This is no slouchy journal, okay? Authoritative journal of scientific research. All right, got it. So as the U.S. population aged 30 years and older reaches 204 million and 225 million in 2030, researchers estimate that the number of adults older than 30 with chronic kidney disease will reach 28 million in 2020 and 38 million in 2030. Okay, so what we have here now is we have fear because half of us are going to have chronic kidney disease. We don't know which half. We don't know how we're going to get it. And so this is fear. Fear is the belief that the unknown is going to reach out and touch you. And, of course, the lack of control. And so as they say then, this increase suggests that chronic kidney disease health care costs and quality of life losses will increase accordingly and further emphasize the need to develop new interventions that is uh, medical torture and mutilation and killing to slow the onset and progression of kidney disease, writes Dr. Thomas Hunger. Okay. And chronic kidney disease currently affects nearly one in seven U.S. adults. And recent suggest, recent, the research suggests that chronic kidney-related deaths have doubled in the last 20 years. And in 2010, it cost Medicare $32.9 billion. And earlier, chronic kidney disease stage cost the system $48 billion. All right, so now we're talking, we're talking money. So the proportion of people with this illness will rise from 13% to 14% and to 16% in 2030. Now, it gets even better. We were surprised by the high probability of developing chronic kidney disease during a lifetime, the doctor said. At the individual level for persons in three age brackets, 30 to 49, with no chronic kidney disease at baseline, the probable lifetime risk is 54% people aged 30 to 49. It's 52% for people aged 50 to 64, and 42% for people 65 years and older. Now, this is shocking because you would think the people over 65 would have a higher risk, but it gets better. By comparison, the, the rates are 12.5% for breast cancer, 33% to 38% for diabetes, and 90% for hypertension. But wait, again, whenever you get this piece of propaganda, you have to bring in external information. So what's the external information? We know that the leading cause of chronic kidney disease is diabetes. That is considered to be the leading cause. So how can diabetes be 38% and chronic kidney disease be 52%? That means that chronic kidney disease must be caused by something other than diabetes. So something here is false. Either diabetes does not cause kidney disease in large numbers, or 
these figures are not true. So let's read on. But again, you're supposed to gloss over this, look at the fact that it's in the Kennedy Journal, and just believe the assumption or the conclusion. Okay, so Dr. Honger and Associates completed a projection study for the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, CDC. Using a previously developed health policy model, they followed individuals from their current age to death or age 90 years. I guess whichever happened first. To simulate the residual lifetime incidence of chronic kidney disease. And so the word here is simulate. In other words, it wasn't actual. The simulation sample was based on nationally representative data on persons aged 30 years and older from certain surveys. We focused on CKD, chronic kidney disease, prevalence among adults, blah, blah, blah. Here's the clincher. The researchers acknowledge, however, that because of limited data, their model estimates are based on unwarranted assumptions. Do you hear that? Unwarranted assumptions? About steady annual declines in kidney function. The assumption of constant rate is probably an oversimplification they concede, adding that better data for future projections could lead to better model projections. Okay. So the last paragraph, which most we'll never get to, says, and by the way, these numbers are totally unreliable. But again, get a busy doctor, read the headlines. You might even read the first five paragraphs. It doesn't get to the last paragraph, which says, this is all a crock of stuff. So this is an example of one act in constructing the Greek tragedy, creating the atmosphere of fear and so many things to fear. And so this is what we are deliberately surrounded by and people respond to as they rush in to be mutilated, to be assaulted, tortured, and actually killed. And so this is what we read, just read this after the course. So the course is this research that doctors are bombarded with, and then I'm sure you guys, can, if you turn on to your TV set, you'll hear some commercials about chronic kidney disease, of course, citing this study, and uh, there we go, we're off to the races. And so, the other thing in terms of a Greek tragedy is that all human actions that are worked out to the end, passing through the unforeseeable contingencies of a world we never made, in other words, external forces, follow a similar course. So the conscious purpose which they start is redefined after each unforeseen contingency is suffered. And at the end, in the light of hindsight, we see the truth of what we've been doing. So what does that mean? You go to the doctor for your annual physical. The doctor does a bunch of tests. He finds an abnormality. Oh, we need more tests. And now you're motivated by your desire to, to find out, to, to solve this, to see how serious this is. And then you get another test. And then you get a complication. Maybe you get an allergic reaction to the dye. Maybe the cardiac catheterization ruptures in arteries, whatever. And then now you have a medical emergency. Now you need to be hospitalized. You need drugs. And now you experience permanent damage. 
And only at the end, as you get discharged home, and in hindsight, you see the truth of what you've been doing, of what you've been involved in. And at each step of the way, the chorus sings. At each step of the way, the chorus reinforces your decision. At each step of the way, your chorus reinforces, reinforces the next step. And even when you finally get home, what are you told? To get a follow-up appointment with the very doctor who mutilated you, in which case it would be the cardiologist who caused the um, complication during the cardiac cath, for example. Um, and then the chorus sets in again. Well, you don't want to ignore this. Well, you do have a heart condition. Well, it is a cardiologist. We'll just go and see what it is. Well, you want to live, don't you? And so you have the chorus, and the chorus is not only the media, but now your family becomes part of the chorus. And it's a loud, you know, din. And the only hope for this, of course, is to rewrite your own plot. You've got to rewrite your own plot. So once you get to, well, as far as you want to go with this, um, so for me, when I had my uh, serious uh, awakening, when I was mutilated and uh, nearly murdered in the hospital, and I finally left with, with my life and not much else, actually. Well, my baby, my, my son did live. So we went home, and I had a little bit, little, little uh, meeting with myself, and I determined that I was not going to submit to that again, that when I got pregnant again, which I had planned to do, I was not going back to the medical system. And the chorus kicked in. My mother, my friends, everybody. Oh, my God, Dr. Daniel. Oh, Jennifer. Oh, you're not going to take a chance, are you? I said, are you serious? Going to the hospital is taking the chance. And so I had to redefine the whole experience and the goal. And so the goal could not be the help of my unborn child because the chorus wasn't hearing it. The chorus believed that the future of my child was going to be seriously jeopardized if I just had this kid at home. I said, okay, so we can't say that. Well, we can definitely say that to save my life, it would be better to stay out of the hospital. So everyone pretty much agreed on that. So we could agree on that. So when you're in the throes of the Greek tragedy, you've got to rewrite the script. You have no other choice because everyone else is reading off a particular script. You've got the chorus. You can't control the media. That piece of the chorus, is, you just have no control over it. The other piece of the chorus is co-workers, um, relatives. That piece of the chorus, again, you may simply have to exert your right to privacy and just not even talk to these people. But you have to seek out people who are willing to accept a different script or yourself simply have the courage to act independently. And a big part of the uh, Greek tragedy, of course, is just the drama of it all, the drama of it all. Fear, 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 <gasps> tragedy. Fear, 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 <gasps> tragedy and pity. And so that is the, the pattern. And so if you recognize that pattern, that, that this is what feeds people 
excitement, interest, desire, and this is really what they're after, to satisfy this appetite, then you can just play right into it. In my case, I was like, you know what? You guys can be a part of a very exciting event. That is my home birth on the living room floor, and you can see God come down from the heavens and strike me dead in whatever form he might want to do that. And so, of course, this was a serious spectator sport. I mean, there were eight people present. I won't say necessarily supporters either. So there was my mother, who thought this was, like, not a good idea. My sister, who was pretty neutral. My brother, who felt it'd be an educational experience for his children and three of his children. And then two of my children. So that's a full house. And then, of course, two friends of mine said they would come along and well, do what they could. So we had a pretty full house here. And it was almost like an amphitheater with me sitting on a quilt, scantily clad, after all, I was giving birth, with people lined up along the steps, peering over the railings, watching. People running in from the kitchen to look, and oh my God, they couldn't see anymore. They'd run back to the kitchen. And then they'd run back and take another peek, and like, oh my God, it's too much to bear. And they'd run back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So it was really an incredible drama for them. Of course, for me, easy beans. It was very relaxing. I felt uh, totally not threatened at all. And so, having given us fear enough, this is what Aristotle says, they melt us with pity, purging us of our emotions and reconciling us to our faith because we understand it as the universal human law. This is very, very important. So if they're flushing with fear, 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 and never release that pressure with pity, then after a while, the, the pressure gets to be too much, and you say, you know what? I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to stop all this fear. I'm not going to believe this. This must be preposterous. And you just walk away. But you've got to... So the people who are writing this Greek tragedy, of which you are a part, have got to, from time to time, basically slaughter uh, a lamb or slaughter an individual to keep the attention of the crowds, to keep the chorus credible and believable, and even to keep the individual characters entering the arena, entering the play, saying their lines. And you know you're in a Greek tragedy when uh, everything sounds like, it sounds like the next lines were already written for you. <laughs> and, so, and so what uh, Aristotle says then is there's a ritual form of Greek tragedy. It's ritual. And you know, it's like paint by numbers. And I can't tell you all the times when I would see my father reading Hamlet and say, oh my God, I wish I could understand that stuff. Well, it's no big deal, easy beans. It actually has a ritual form. And it's, it's easy. And so, for the last hundred years or more, Greek tragedy has been understood as an outgrowth of the rites celebrated annually at the festival of Dionysus. And so, the, the deal here is this is standard operating procedure. It has been for hundreds of years. And 
this is the way you captivate the passion, captivate the imagination of large numbers of people and get them to participate. And the important thing is to have that chorus. The important thing is to have the whole audience and everyone at large filled with fear. And so people are motivated by this fear of the unknown, which of course gets revealed from time to time when one of their member is slaughtered. And so when a person is slaughtered, uh, as in a um, healthcare situation, let's say something very mundane, someone gets a hospital-acquired infection and dies, okay? Then the spectators are like, oh my God, there is something to fear. The fear is real. Let's go on and let's fear more and more and more. And so then you build up this desire to be taxed, this desire to pay insurance premiums, this desire to get that annual physical, desire to get those tests, this desire to accept the complications, desire to take pills for conditions that, why, you didn't even know you had them. So the pattern then is fear, 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 (gasps) pity, sacrifice an individual. In the United States, these sacrifices are made at least 880,000 times a year where human beings, United States citizens, are literally sacrificed on the altar of the medical-industrial complex. And this is what the whole Greek tragedy tells us, is that we just need to have something that's feared, the more vague, the better. In this case, we have chronic kidney disease uh, that we're now being told to fear if there's a chance of getting that midwife. Um, we've got the HIV virus that's still out there. Uh, Ebola is coming. And again, Ebola, there's not even a test for the virus, but we know it's coming. We know it's here. Why? Well, take my word for it. And so we have the chorus, the chorus um, telling us the Ebola is coming, Ebola is coming, Ebola is coming. And when I was in medical school, I want you to know back in 1979, Ebola was coming. And um, as a medical student, I only had four years in medical school, which is all anybody has. I'm like, man, I need more to know more about this Ebola virus. It's going to kill us all. Again, it's 1979 to 83. And so they could not tell us what the test was. They could not tell us what test we should be ordering. They could only tell us that the CDC would be giving us orders in the future. So this is, uh, this is the, the modern, I should say, the Greek tragedy. Now, also, they have a whole chart, literally a chart, paint-by-numbers chart, and they tell you the different tragedies and what happens and which event is which. So I'll give you an example. Like all this stuff I'm telling you, when I went to school, it was totally beyond me, over my head. I couldn't get it. It was, it was just so confusing. But here they lay it out very clearly. Um, and here they talk about Oedipus. And you have the chorus. You have Oedipus talking to Creon. You have the chorus singing and, you know, moving things along. And so the first goal was to stop the, the plague or drought 
uh, in the city. Well, then they went to the oracle. The oracle said, well, in order to stop this drought, you've got to find out who killed Lias. So it's now become the rational purpose. Everyone says, oh, okay, we're going to go look for who killed this guy. And then you have episodes, and you have the, the um, chorus singing and advancing the plot. And then you have um, Oedipus realizing that he was responsible and gouging out his eyes. And um, his whole the goal, which was to find the killer, find the killer, abruptly gets reversed when he finds out the killer is him. Oh, my God. Everything gets reversed. And this is exactly what happens in the medical industrial complex. So people are searching for the cure, searching for the cure, the cure, the cure, the cure, the cure, the cure, only the boom, drop dead, to find that what they were engaged in had no cure. Now, you need also an educational success story, which, of course, is the person who was never sick in the first place, who submitted to all of the different interventions, and, of course, survived them. So that is basically the modern... Greek tragedy starring you. And how do you keep from taking your place in this ritual? Don't show up. First step is don't get insurance. All insurance does is buy you a ticket to the killing field. Second, ignore the chorus. Turn off the chorus. Public service announcement, turn it off. TV, radio, turn it off. Or if you do hear anything on those um, information channels, just turn it around. Assume the opposite is actually true. So you cannot escape the Greek tragedy if you believe and listen to the chorus. And then you have to refuse to be a part of the audience. So if you have a, a um, friend or relative who is going through the ritual, then you can assist them uh, sympathetically, but refuse to be part of the audience or even the play. So if you have a relative, the doctor says do this and they don't do it, hey, you're not the police, you're not the enforcer, let them slide, let them know you love them, don't be a tool. So that's what you need to do. People have questions, they can click there must be some number they can click. And then I can get over here and see if I can find that screen for questions. We have lots of questions in the chat room, so I better mosey on over there to the chat room and see. <laughs> okay. All right, so we have chat rooms concerned about money. Okay. So you are not healthy until the doctors say you are. Exactly. And this is where it starts, seeking the approval of the religious leader of the oracle, worshiping at the temple. And so if you don't worship at the temple, then um, you can't be part of the sacrificial slaughter. And just in the old, just like in the old days, people would come to the temple and they would get snatched. Before you know it, they're strung up and mutilated and slaughtered. Same thing happens when you go to the medical temple. You just don't know when it's your turn. What do you suppose is the reason for the increase in this kidney disease? <laughs> All right. All right, so let's, I'm going to read this, but this is the crux of the issue. 
Roundup, aluminum, what's causing the diabetes and treats in the food? Standard American diet? Okay, the answer is none of the above because the increase in the kidney disease is bogus. These numbers are made up. Um, there is not and will not be a 50% affliction in kidney disease. So that's, uh, that's the answer. And that's what you need to realize is that this is a totally fictitious script being written for your benefit, to get you to step into your role and play the role. In other words, if you believe this prediction of 50% kidney disease, then you're going to look for kidney disease in every single one of your relatives and friends. And when the doctor slaps them with a, a bogus kidney disease diagnosis, you're going to say, oh, there it is. And then there's your pity, right? And you're going to help railroad them down the road of therapy they do not need. Am I saying that Roundup or aluminum or modern-day food is healthy? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that uh, this is a con job. This is simply writing a Greek tragedy and convincing you to, to live it. Okay. <laughs> okay. If, I had been, if it had been up to my family, my gallbladder would be gone. I ignored the chorus. I bring it up now and then to them, sort of gloating. I still have my gallbladder, and all of them are missing theirs. Okay. <clears throat> Uncle Rick, okay, so once it's fiction, the Matrix. Yes, it is the Matrix, and you can just walk away from it. So unlike the movie The Matrix, um, you are not yet um, locked in you really can just walk away. <laughs> Doctors are now asking for a photo ID claiming they need it due to insurance fraud. Exactly. That's what doctors are, doctors are being accused of insurance fraud if they don't produce a photo ID and attach it to each chart when actually all the government is doing is using the doctor to uh, reinforce and reinforce and really create and construct the police state. And so if you're engaging in the healthcare system and establishing an electronic health record, what you are doing is creating um, basically a tracking system of yourself for the government. Okay, listen, if you are being forced into getting insurance, and I definitely dispute that, what is the best kind to get that doesn't require you to fill out any paperwork? Answers don't get insurance. Don't do it. Uh, simply go for the penalty. And if someone says, well, you can't, you can't play baseball if you're not insured, then you say, well, I guess I can't play on your team. Um, you just, you would be shocked where it leads you. It leads you to a life of health, of confidence, and uh, really a sense of incredibly increased power. It's incredible when you face down the boogeyman, when you walk into something where you are told you absolutely, you will die, and you don't, like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, for me, when I rolled out that quilt, sat down on the floor and said, okay, I'm just having my baby and that's the, that's the end of that, and two and a half hours later, I had a healthy baby with no problems. I mean, you can imagine just the increased power. It was awesome. It was almost superhuman. Why? Well, first of all, I hadn't been abused at all, so I didn't need an eight-week recovery time. So I only needed a day and a half to recover from the pregnancy, and I felt perfectly fine. So it literally gave me 
eight weeks of awesome energy added to my life, which is tough to get. Can't I mean no medical intervention gives you that. So um you know, you just gotta pull yourself together and have a bit of courage. So I don't know a circumstance that you feel is forcing you into getting insurance, but I suggest to you that it's imaginary. And again, it's the whole illusory thing that the um, Greek tragedy is based on. So your ultimate, motiv- ultimate motivation in a Greek tragedy has to be illusory. And so you're fitting right in here to the uh, Greek tragedy model. Okay. Then they con your family into being your worst enemy without them even knowing it. Exactly. Your family becomes the audience, becomes the chorus, um, pushing you, um, the actor, further to the tragic cliff um, and the tragic outcome and result. That is it. So that is the end of our episode today. We'll see you back next week where we have another gripping episode. And until then, think happens and stay away from, don't get caught up in a Greek tragedy, even if you are the star.